Today we're kind of wrapping up our sermon series on Better Than 2020 Vision. Uh, we've talked about uh, the blind who won't see, the blind who want to see, the blind who are made to see. And last week we talked about the blind who see but still struggle. And we talked about the Pharisees and Sadducees, the challenge of understanding spiritual things through our secular lives. We talked about the divine revelation that Peter received to answer Jesus' question properly and the struggle between the flesh and the spirit that we still battle today. So to close out our series today, we're going to talk about the blind who see clearly. And obviously this is the category that we really want all of us to fall into. We don't want to be the ones who see but still struggle. We don't want to definitely don't want to be the ones who won't see, who just completely reject the truth of Scripture. But we want to be the ones who see clearly. And so today I want to talk to you about four different things that will help mark you as somebody who sees clearly. These four things I think are brought out in the text uh, through what Jesus tells the disciples, and it helps them to understand, it should help us to understand how to be a person who can see clearly. Um, this is an interesting passage. This is a challenging passage. This is a passage we see repeated. I know in Luke 9, you see a lot of this same stuff. Uh, and I really, I don't want to speak in, uh, in, 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 in like a totality sense, uh, because there's a lot of things in Scripture you need to know. But if you don't know these four things that we're going to bring out today in Matthew 16, you really don't know how to follow Jesus. And, and I say that with all sincerity and with all humility. Uh, I'm still working on some of these. I'm still working on getting better at some of these. But if you don't grab these four concepts, it's going to be impossible for you to really follow Christ. So if you would, let's stand this morning and let's read Verses 24 through 28 of Matthew 16. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. What will it benefit a man if he gains the whole world, yet loses his life? Or what will a man gain or give in exchange for his life. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will reward each according to what he has done. I assure you there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now before you sit, before we pray, I want to make sure we understand this last part because we're not really going to dive too deep into that, this last verse. Really what he's talking about here is Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John see Jesus at the transfiguration and so they have seen what he's saying here the son of man coming in his kingdom they have seen what he says I know there's a lot of people that say that this verse uh, shows that either John did not die uh, you know remember John they tried to kill John he was the last one they killed all the rest of them and they couldn't kill him and so they exiled him and some believe and some have even taught that John still is alive today I, I don't believe that uh, they use that because Jesus told Peter, he said, What's it, what is it to you if I let him never die? Because he was telling Peter how he was going to die. And, of course, Peter said, well, what about this guy? What about John? And he said, what's it to you? <clears throat> I could let him live forever. But I don't believe John lived forever, but some people teach that because of this verse. I believe this verse is talking about the Mount of Transfiguration where Peter, James, and John saw Jesus and, and saw him trans, transfigured in, in front of them. Okay? All right. Everybody clear on that one? All right. Let's pray. Father, I need you to speak today, God, not from me, not from uh, my wisdom or my study. God, I need your spirit to speak to us today. 
so we can hear clearly how to make our lives conform to that of your son, Jesus, so we can follow him more clearly and show him to a lost and dying world more completely. Father, use this time for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. So the first thing I want us to talk about, we're actually going to talk about three primarily through the first part of verse 24. Three of these things. So the first one is what to exclude. And Jesus tells them there, if anyone wants to come after me or come with me or follow me, depending on what your translation says, he must deny himself. Now this is clear uh, for us to understand that Jesus did not come to earth to be some kind of a self-help guru. He didn't come to earth to help you live your best life now. He came to show us the Father's love by living the life we couldn't live, dying the death we deserve to die, and overcoming the grave so we can have eternal life. And for us to see clearly, we must reject our sinfulness. So we've got to see our sinfulness and we've got to reject our sinfulness. We've got to exclude it. We have to exclude ourselves from our fleshly desires by denying those desires. And that's what he's talking about. When he says, must deny himself, he's talking about denying the flesh, denying the lust of the flesh, denying the pursuits of the flesh, denying the things that the flesh lingers in or or points to. We've got to be spiritual beings more than fleshly beings. We've got to overcome this propensity we have to say and do and think and live the wrong way. Luke 14, 26 is a very challenging verse. It's a very interesting verse. And to be honest with you, it's probably the verse in the Bible that I've had the most students either when I was a youth pastor or a college pastor, that have reached out to me and said, hey, wait a minute, I read this today and I don't understand this. I'm not sure. So let me give it to you. It says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, this is a challenging verse, and this is where Jesus is telling us we have to hate every other relationship in our life. But the Bible is clear that hating is wrong. Hating your brother specifically is wrong. Let me give you several of them. Uh, Leviticus 19, 17. You must not harbor hatred against your brother. Jesus even said in Matthew 5, 22, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. 1 John 2, 9. The one who says he's in the light but hates his brother is in the darkness. 1 John 3, 15. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. 1 John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother, he has seen, cannot love the God he has not seen. Now, these are clear indications that hating your brother is wrong. So why would Jesus say this? Well, let me tell you. Simply put, what he is trying to communicate is that every other relationship in your life has got to look like hate compared with your love for Jesus Christ. And, and don't take that lightly. Don't, don't let that just kind of wash over super, superficially. This is a deep spiritual truth that every other relationship in our lives, including the relationship we have with ourselves, has to look like hatred compared to how much we love Christ, compared, compared to how much we have surrendered to Christ. Every other relationship We can't have anything else that we value or love more than we love Christ. And because all of our lives are are spent battling against idolatry, this is a key verse for us to understand. Anything you love more, serve more, worship more, it is an idol and it's got to be torn down. 
In this time, many of the disciples that Jesus uh, was talking to would face intense pressure from their family members to turn away from what they called the way and return to Judaism. Let me ask you this. If your family were to try to force you to, to recant, to, to tell the world that you didn't follow Jesus, how would that make you feel? Hopefully you would feel a little bit conflicted because if you're not at least a little bit conflicted, I'm not sure about your relationship with your family. But if you, sub, if you surrender uh, your love for Christ, if you, if you recant your, your faith in Christ because of your family, then you loved your family more than you loved Jesus. And, and, and let me tell you what that means. Can you lose your salvation? No. Well, well, you just said if somebody recants Jesus, if their family asks them to, they, they, they're not saved anymore. No, I didn't say they weren't saved anymore. I said they weren't saved. Because here's the thing. You cannot lose what you do not have. If you hear that I lost a million dollars, somebody's lying to you. If you hear that I lost a Lamborghini, somebody's telling you a story. You cannot lose your salvation, but you can't lose what you don't have. If you, te- if you say that I love Jesus and I'm a follower of Christ, and then you re- recant that for any reason, that means you weren't saved to begin with. You had a profession of faith, but you didn't have a sincerity of faith. If your flesh tries to force you to choose between it and Jesus, between self and Jesus, you have to be willing to choose Jesus every time. And that's going to be the more likely scenario for us But for these disciples, for for Christians all over the world today, in in communist places, in Muslim countries, they're often asked by their family members to recant, to reject this new faith that they have professed, and to turn back to their own tradition. Either way, the point Jesus is making here in Luke is that every other relationship has to look like hate, and that means you are sold out to Jesus. So we have to exclude ourselves, our flesh, and our sin, and that's what to exclude. But the second thing I want to talk to you about is what to embrace. After he says you must deny himself, he says he must take up his cross. In Luke 9.23, it adds the, uh, the indicator daily. He must take up his cross daily. Jesus first mentions the cross to his disciples in Matthew 10.38 where he told them, and whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. This taking up of the cross is a difficult understanding for us. It is something hard for us to process because we don't live in a day where they literally hang people on a cross uh, in the public square as they did in the, in the Roman times. But I want you to hear this. Followers of Christ must cling to the mission and not money, to the Lord and not life, to peace and not politics, and to the cross and not the culture. The cross there, the cross is a Greek word, staros, which used uh, figuratively, it means to undergo suffering, trial, and or punishment, to expose oneself to reproach and death. See, here's the picture. Take up his cross meant you were going to the place that you were going to be killed. You were going to the place that you were going to be punished. You were going to the place where you were, would die. And people on the cross, this is the epitome of, of surrender. And this is, I believe, why they used this so prevalently in this time was to show their utter domination on every other society, their utter domination over any individual that tried to stand against them. Because when you were on the cross, you were completely helpless. If somebody comes at you and they've got their fists up, you're going you're gonna to protect yourself, right? You're going to kind of coil up. If, if you're being attacked by an animal, you're going to coil up. If you'll watch, most people, a few weeks ago, I had the joy of being able to scare Jillian. 
It was accidental. I was, I was talking to Kendra on a Wednesday night. I came out of the Wemo kids' room. I cut across the hallway, and I saw the office suite light on. I went to turn it off, and Jillian was walking out of her office, and I just kind of, rah, just did that. And she, she did this. She was walking, and she, she tensed up. She pulled everything in. That's our natural re- reaction when we have fear is to clench in and protect our internal organs. Look at me. The cross, you don't do that. The cross, you are splayed out. You are spread out. Your, your hands are stretched out, and they're nailed to a cross so that you can't protect, so that you can't defend, so that you can't climb down. You are naked. You are bare. You are exposed. You are done. And this is the image of us taking up our cross, going to the place that we can fully surrender and give our lives to Christ so He can do whatever He chooses to do with them. When Jesus said this, his original audience would have envisioned this horrific form of capital punishment. It would be similar to us today to say he must take up his electric chair. Again, it's not the same thing because the electric chair is done with a lot more civility, a lot more uh, being able to keep your clothes on, and they put a hood over the person's face. They, They take steps to make sure that it's a quick death. The cross was not like that. The cross was a place of torment and suffering. There's no comparison that we have in our judicial system to what they had in the cross. A.W. Tozer in his book, Man, the Dwelling Place of God, has a great quote. I want you to listen to this. Always remember, you cannot carry a cross in company. Though a man were surrounded by a vast crowd, his cross is his alone, and his carrying of it marks him as a man apart. Let me read that one more time. Always remember, you cannot carry a cross in company. Though a man were surrounded by a vast crowd, his cross is his alone, and his carrying of it marks him as a man apart. Denise, will you put that picture up? I want you to see this picture. If you've seen the Passion of the Christ, you've seen this picture. You've seen this image. And I know this is a little harsh early in the morning, but it needs to be. I want you to look at this picture. I want you to think about what this picture looks like. Here's Jesus beaten, scourged, crown of thorns jabbed into his head. His beard has been plucked. He's been beaten and spit upon and cursed. And he's taking his cross. He's carrying his cross up the Via Della Rosa to go to Calvary where he is going to be nailed on that cross to die. Look at the way he's holding that cross. Look at the way he's holding that piece of wood. It looks almost to me like he's cherishing that piece of wood. It looks almost to me like there's an affection with the way he's holding that piece of wood. This is one of the things in the movie I think they did the best job with showing because I do believe because he knew and understood the purpose behind what he was about to do, he could embrace the cross. He could love the cross. He could adore the cross. Not because of the pain, because the pain would be something to hate, Not because of the embarrassment, because of the embarrassment would be something to hate, but because of what the cross symbolized and what was about to be accomplished, he could truly love what he was doing. Church, you need to hear this. That's got to be your approach to following Jesus and taking up your cross. Embrace it. Love it. Cherish it. Value it. Here's the question. What would our lives look like if we learn to embrace 
whatever suffering we had to endure here on earth for the glory of God. I've had a lot less than this come at me in my life and I've not embraced it the way Jesus embraced this cross. And I repent of that. I want to embrace whatever suffering I have to suffer because I know the good that will come from it. So that's what to exclude and we just that's what to embrace the cross and then number 3 what who to emulate? Who to emulate? He says deny himself, take up his cross and then he says this, follow me. Following Jesus means to emulate Jesus. And it would be really easier if there were no persecution, if there were no trouble, if there were no pressure, if there were no problems, if there were no cancer, if there were no loss, if there were no sickness, if there were no COVID, if there were no financial difficulties. That would be pretty easy. Unfortunately, that's not how it's going to go. In John 16.33, Jesus said this, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. And underline this in your mind, you will have suffering in this world. Some translations say tribulations, hardships, difficulties, challenges. But then he says, be courageous, I have overcome or conquered the world. We have to understand when we suffer, it should not come as a surprise. We should never be shocked by our suffering. We should never be shocked by our persecution. We should never be shocked by the fact that the world does not embrace the things that we embrace. That the world rejects the way of life that we tell them we follow. In Luke 9, verses 57 through 62, there's a very interesting series of events there. There are three people who come to Jesus and say, I want to follow you. And Jesus tells all three of them what that looks like, and they all three go away. And then this passage, 57 through 62, closes with Jesus making this terribly bold and and harsh statement. And I want to give it to you this morning. He says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Let me say that again. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The simple visual here would be understood by this time period because they were plowing. They would stand behind their their, uh, ox or their mule or their team and they would hold the plow and they would have to watch what they were doing to make sure they plowed straight rows. Listen to me, if you don't plow straight rows, you're wasting crop space. And so they couldn't look back. If they looked back... The same thing with you driving. If you drop something in the back seat, leave it back there. Because if you're looking for something in the back seat while you're driving, you're going to move. You're going to shift. You're going to change lanes without planning to. You're going to have an accident. You're going to wreck. Don't look back. Look forward. Keep your eyes on the road. Keep your eyes on the, on the road that you're plowing. And this is what Jesus is saying. Let me, let me simplify and just say this. If you ain't all in, you are not in. That's what he's saying. If you are not all in, you are not in. There's no halfway to heaven. There's heaven and hell. That's it. There's no almost heaven. There's no uh, the left side of heaven. I've heard people say, oh, I don't want a mansion. I just want a bench. I want a mansion. I want a mansion. I want to hear well done. And that's the only way you're getting in is to keep your hand to the plow. You've put your faith in Christ. You have taken up your cross. You've denied yourself. Follow him. Keep your eyes on the back of Jesus and make sure that your feet are going in His footprints. I always tell people, I want to follow Jesus so closely that when His sandal kicks up, it throws sand in my face. I want to be right on His heels. I want to follow Him so closely. If we're going to emulate Jesus, we have to be willing to give our lives for the cause of Christ. There can be no holding back, no turning back, 
No shadow of doubt. The church has often been too soft on explaining the demands as a follower of Christ needs to know them. But the days are coming when the costs are going to be more tangible. The costs are going to be more obvious. And so our instructions must be more clear. I want everybody to listen to me. I want to say this clearly here at 8.52 in the morning on Sunday. You have got to understand that following Jesus will cost you. Anybody who stands in a pulpit and tells you that you just come to Jesus and all your troubles go away is a liar or a foolish person. When you start to follow Jesus, troubles are coming. But you have an overcomer. Problems are coming. But you have peace because you put your life in the hands of the Almighty God. But you're not going to escape problems by following Jesus. You're going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Let me tell you something this morning. If you're not walking with Jesus, it ain't the valley of the shadow of death. It's the valley of death. The only reason it's a shadow for me, for you, if we put our faith in Christ, is He has taken away the sting of death. And all we have to do is deal with the shadow. And let me tell you this, the shadow is heavy enough. You don't want to have to deal with the weight of eternal death. So we've talked about what to exclude. We've talked about what to embrace. We've talked about who to emulate. And finally, let's talk about what not to exchange. In verses 25 through 27, he says this really interesting analogy here or, or, or challenge if you will he says whoever wants to save his life will lose it wait what and then he says whoever wants to, whoever loses his life because of me will find it wait what what will it benefit if a man if a man gains the whole world yet loses his life or loses his soul or what will a man get, give in exchange for his life or his soul now, now, this is a difficult thing to understand, but heaven's economy works very differently. It's got a different exchange rate than any other place on the earth. To take makes you lose, and to gain you must give. That's backwards, right? Our world tells us a lot of different things. It says, always look out for number one. Always look out for number one. That's a very American statement, isn't it? I don't know who I, I saw this. I don't know who, who to attribute it to, but uh, you have to be your own hero because everyone else is busy trying to save themselves. What a ridiculous statement. You have to be your own hero. Listen, even if you just follow the comic books, you know that's a dumb thing to say. What makes you a hero is because you're not trying to save yourself. You're trying to save others. We've written 75 Marvel movies <laughs> That the premise of all of them is that, that the, the, the arrogant, cocky, self-centered hero eventually gives himself up for everybody else. See, we didn't have an arrogant, self-centered, cocky hero. We had a hero that came to serve, not to be served. We had, we had a hero that came to die in our place rather than ask us to die in his place. Jesus is saying here that giving up your life is the only way to save it and that the entire world is not worth exchanging for your eternity in His presence. All right, let's, let's do an age check here. How many of y'all were alive in 1963? Let me put my hand down. <laughs> I'm old, I ain't that old, okay. <laughs> All right, some of y'all remember a show that debuted in 1963 called Let's Make a Deal. 
Anybody remember that show? Anybody remember the, the, the name of the MC, of the host? Monty Hall. I knew I'd have somebody that knew it. So here's the premise of this show for those of you that are younger and haven't. So they got a new version that's come out. I'm, anytime I have a new version of an old show, I just feel like they're going to have like somebody's going to be naked or something. It's just like we, we have to like dirty stuff up. Stuff was funny back in the 60s without all that. Anyway, so, so if you go back, you can find them on YouTube and watch some of the old episodes. It's really a funny show. And, and especially when you think about the modern times and you're watching some of these shows in the 60s. And he's like, here's $25. And they're like, oh, $25. And we're like, we wouldn't, we wouldn't bend over to pick up $25. But here's the premise of the show. Monty Hall comes by and he picks up random people out of the audience and he says, hey, what's your name? Where are you from? And then he says, all right, I'm going to give you this gift. You're going to get a toaster oven. You're going to get some money. You're going to get whatever, a coat. And then you can keep that or you can take this box or you can take what's in my pocket or you can pick one of the doors, door number one, two, or three. And the premise is you have to decide. It's gambling. You have to decide, is a bird in the hand really worth two in the bush, or do I want to go look in the bush? And so you say, well, I'm going to give you this back, and I'm going to reach in your pocket. I'm going to give you this back, and I'm going to take the box. I'm going to give you this back, and I'm going to pick one of those doors. This is the same way the enemy works. The same exact way the enemy works in our lives. The enemy says, all right, God has come to give you eternal life. He's come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. But I'm going to let you pick what's in my pocket. I'm going to let you pick what's in this box. So you can pick behind door number whatever. You don't want to just keep this stuff that God's giving you, do you? What about this other stuff? What about the intrigue? And one of the things about let's make a deal that always got me tickled was when somebody had like $500. And they were like, hey, you're holding $500. Or you can have, and they'll say, I'll take door number two, and it was a donkey. Or it was a goat. Or they would pick, uh, I'll take the box, and it's a, a fur coat, but it's not really good fur. It's like, you know, possum, a possum coat. I love that because that's a great analogy with what the enemy does. Listen to me. Nothing the enemy is offering you is better than what God has already given you, but your flesh is going to tell you, ooh, that seems like a good deal. Ooh, I, oh, man, I, if I just had this, if I had this, if I had this person, this relationship, if I had this, this more money or more fame, if I just had this other stuff, it would fulfill me. No, no, no. If you're not fulfilled with the love of Christ, if you're not fulfilled by Jesus Christ coming into your life, one of two things is happening. Either, number one, you don't really have Jesus in your life, and that would be my first guess, or number two, you're never going to be satisfied. Your flesh will tell you it just takes a little more. Your flesh will tell you it's just something different. Your flesh will tell you that you deserve it. Let me tell you something. You don't deserve the gift that Jesus gave you. You sure don't deserve anything better. This world offers you all this stuff, and yet God has given you joy, hope, peace, love, and eternity with Him. Charles Spurgeon said this, Nothing teaches us about the preciousness of the Creator as much as when we learn the emptiness of everything else. Mm, Y'all didn't get that. I didn't hear one amen. Let's try it again. Nothing teaches us about the preciousness of the Creator as much as when we learn the emptiness of everything else. Can anybody here just say that you've learned about the emptiness? I can. I've been all over the world. And I've tried every different thing you can try to find to to find uh, peace and happiness and joy and contentment and whatever. And let me tell you something. Let me tell you where I found it. Found it right here in the words of this book. When I came to know Jesus Christ. All the pleasures of this life can offer are fleeting. 
but the love of God is eternal. And I'm begging you this morning, don't exchange eternal peace for earthly pleasure. So to close, I want to tell you a story. I've kind of referenced this story a couple times. And, and again, I'm just going to pull the curtain back and be honest. I reached out to, to Brother Jerry Spencer, who was a pastor in Dothan, evangelist. He's been a missionary in Africa for a number of years. One of my heroes. He's just a great guy, great preacher. Uh, and, and he told this story years ago, and I've kind of referenced it before, but I, I actually messaged him and said, Brother Jerry, can you give me that full story again so I can tell it in its entirety and get it right? So I'm, I want to close with this story. It happened in Soto, Ethiopia, which is the communist-controlled part of Ethiopia from 87 to 91. Brother Jerry was there a few years ago preaching in an auditorium that was used by the communists during that time period, and his translator got up to translate for him, and the man began weeping uncontrollably. When he gained his composure, he said that during the communist domination, he'd attended a Marxist youth rally in that same building. The chairman had 10 pastors marched up to the area in front just at the edge of the platform. He was an evil man. He was a, an awful man. And he made fun of these Christians and he promoted atheism. And he gave each one of the pastors time to recant, time to reject their statement of faith in Christ. But none would deny their faith. So one by one, they started to behead them, starting on one end. And as they started to behead them, The men were shouting things like, I'll never deny my Jesus. Or all glory to the everlasting God. Or, oh Jesus, we're coming home. One of them said, oh my dear wife, they killed you and now they're killing me. I'll see you in just a moment. The translator who also played keyboard for this event said, As I was playing, I looked down and saw the blood stain still on the floor where the pastors died. I remember being in shock that night as I sat with other teenagers and watched this horrible sight. I said to my friends, let's go outside. And once outside, I said, whatever those pastors have, I want. He said one of his friends knew the plan of salvation, and so they started discussing it. And 12 of those young boys gave their lives to Christ that night. As Grayson and the worship team come to lead us, let me just simply tell you this and ask you a question I believe those 10 men I believe those 10 men who were murdered because of their faith in Christ I believe those 10 men who were beheaded because they wouldn't recant Jesus I believe they knew what to exclude what to embrace who to emulate and what not to exchange so my question for you this morning is fairly simple do you can you say honestly that you know what it takes to follow Jesus. And when he says that anyone who wants to come after me needs to deny himself, take up his cross and follow me, can you say that you've done that? If you're here this morning and you've never done that, today can be the day that you do that. And again, I'll say this until I die, until I fall over, until I'm blue in the face. I'm not talking about a church membership. I'm not talking about church attendance. I'm not talking about how many times you went to Sunday school or your mom and them or your me and them. I'm talking about your personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know today that you are denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus? If you don't, today can be the day of salvation. If you're here today, you've never done that, please don't hesitate. Come now. If you're here, you say, I've done that, Brother Kevin, but I've, I've allowed my life to slip. I've allowed some of the things of the world, some of my fleshly desires to draw me out of a good fellowship with Jesus. I still know my faith is in Him, but I'm not living for Him like I need to. 
Come now and rededicate your life. Tell this church body that you want to serve Jesus more fully and watch them wrap their arms around you and support you as you do that. If you're here today and you say, Brother Kevin, I've, I've given my life to Christ. I'm following Jesus, but I don't have a church to serve in. I'm not somewhere that I'm connected. You can move your letter. You can join this church today. Whatever the Spirit is asking you to do today, you have one opportunity to be fully obedient. And I pray you would do that now as we stand.